Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Major depressive disorder is highly prevalent in primary care and is among the most common causes of loss of disability-adjusted life years worldwide. In this review article, Kennedy provides general practitioners with a comparison of major depressive disorder treatments received in primary care and psychiatric clinic settings as well as a focus on treatment outcomes related to currently prescribed antidepressants and a review of new and emerging therapeutic strategies. Achieving remission from a major depressive episode is important to improve functional outcomes and to reduce relapse and recurrence. Despite the availability of numerous antidepressants, as many as 50% of patients require treatment modifications beyond first-line therapy, and among remitters, 90% report residual symptoms that may interfere with function. Patients treated in primary care often have chronic depression and medical comorbidities which are clinical predictors of worse outcomes and require individualized attention when treatment is initiated. Also, antidepressants differ in efficacy, tolerability, and side effects, factors that may affect adherence to treatment. There are few differences in clinical profiles between depressed patients in primary care and those in specialist clinics, although differences in symptoms and comorbid conditions among depressed patients present a challenge for the physician providing individualized treatment. Physicians in primary care should have expertise in working with a number of current antidepressant approaches and an awareness of new and emerging treatments. This review is sponsored and funded by Takeda as part of a joint clinical development program with H. Lundbeck. The human brain contains two major cholinesterases acetylcholinesterase and butyrylcholinesterase. While acetylcholinesterase is reported to be the most abundant, mounting evidence in the scientific literature suggests that both of these cholinesterases play a role in cholinergic signaling and the underlying pathology of neurologic diseases such as Alzheimer's disease. In this review, Nordberg and colleagues consider the role of butyral cholinesterase in normal cholinergic function. Describe how levels of both cholinesterases are altered during the course of Alzheimer's disease and discuss the rationale for inhibiting cholinesterases as a means of alleviating cholinergic deficits. They also discussed the potential influence of the butyral cholinesterase genotype on the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, the rate of disease progression, and the patient's response to treatment. 
These discussions are supported by evidence from preclinical studies and clinical trials of the dual cholinesterase inhibitor rivastigmine in the symptomatic treatment of patients with Alzheimer's disease. The author suggests that given the changing levels of cholinesterases in the brain as Alzheimer's disease progresses, further studies on the role of butyrol cholinesterase and the effect of dual inhibitors are warranted. Such analyses will allow physicians to optimize their treatment strategies according to the needs of their patients. Development of this manuscript was supported by Novartis. Since 1984, the implantable cardioverter defibrillator has been used in primary prevention of sudden death. The device monitors the heart rate as a conventional pacemaker. When ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation are detected, electrodes implanted in the heart muscle discharge an electric shock and revert the arrhythmia. The shock is very uncomfortable, but most patients tolerate discharges mainly because they appreciate the severity of their condition and the security that the device provides. However, the device may have serious psychological effects for patients and their families. The frequency and intensity of shocks may promote anxiety and depression and may worsen depressive and anxiety disorders among those who already have them. In this systematic review of the literature, the authors investigate the presence of psychiatric comorbidities and quality of life in patients with an implantable cardioverter defibrillator. Research shows that there are prominent signs and symptoms of anxiety and depression in patients with the implantable device. Disorders include phobic anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, panic disorder, somatoform disorder, agoraphobia, and depression. Quality of life in the physical, social, and psychological domains is affected and is related to the intensity and the frequency of the device's electrical discharge. Not all patients receiving an implantable cardioverter defibrillator get the same therapeutic benefit and have the same risk of psychiatric side effects. The authors suggest that patients and their families should be informed by their doctors that the presence of the device minimizes risk of sudden death and allows them to have a normal life. New strategies should be developed to improve quality of life and minimize psychiatric disorders that can be triggered following the implant of a cardioverter defibrillator or after the first shock. Depression is a major independent risk factor in many chronic illnesses. Studies have shown the lifespan in depressed patients to be 25 to 30 years shorter than that of the general population, and the impact of depression on public health currently rivals such risk factors as smoking and obesity. In this review article, the authors analyze the distinct effects of depression on morbidity and mortality in cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and stroke, including behavioral factors and plausible biological mechanisms. Evidence of the robust bidirectional relationship between depression and individual chronic diseases is presented and discussed. 
the authors review existing evidence-based, cost-effective, and free-to-use screening instruments for depression and recommended treatment guidelines. They also provide a brief overview of currently recommended psychotherapeutic and psychopharmacologic treatment approaches related to depression in chronic diseases. Discordance between mental health and primary care within the U.S. public health system is a systematic problem that must be addressed. The situation leads to a potentially high hidden prevalence of underdiagnosed and undertreated depression, especially in underserved populations. The authors conclude that measures must be implemented across the communities of mental health and primary care practitioners in order to achieve a synergistic approach to depression. Have you ever prescribed a stimulant and have been concerned about the risk of substance misuse or diversion, the emergence of tics, or even sudden death? Have you been reluctant to prescribe stimulants for patients with ADHD and comorbid autism, bipolar disorder, or seizures for fear of exacerbating the underlying disorder? Have you felt confused or bewildered as the number of approved stimulant preparations has tripled over the past 15 years? If you have, then the article presented by Stevens and colleagues in this issue's Rounds in the General Hospital should serve as a stimulus for further discussion and provide clinical guidance. The authors explore prescribing practices regarding stimulants for patients with ADHD and examine clinical concerns and challenges to safe and effective prescribing. Now we invite you to engage online in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute Case Conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen at the Institute's Stead Family Memory Clinic. In this issue of the Companion, we highlight the case of Ms. A, an 80-year-old woman who was first noted to have deficits with short-term memory three years ago. At that time, a neurologist diagnosed her with mild cognitive impairment. Since then, her short-term memory has continued to gradually decrease, and she constantly repeats the same questions. Does this patient have mild cognitive impairment, or does she have dementia or an underlying psychiatric disorder? Is she cognitively normal? Visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to answer questions about this patient case and find out how your colleagues who attended the weekly case conference responded in this instructive offering. In this issue's psychotherapy casebook, the author revisits his experiences as a psychiatrist on a palliative care team at a Veterans Administration hospital, where his dual role involves aiding the treatment of inpatients and augmenting the teaching of medical residents. In this setting, palliative care replaces curative intent with comfort care as the goal of treatment for these patients and focuses on pain relief, sleep and appetite promotion, reduction of fatigue, and the minimization of anxiety and depression. 
Visit primarycarecompanion.com to read how the author applies the cognitive model when working with these patients, while also providing a psychological viewpoint to medical trainees. In this issue of The Companion, we also examine the relationship between rages and criminal behavior and review the case of a patient who experienced delirium and agitation after use of illicit bath salts. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings, including case reports, the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, and special web-based interactive content. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites.